So, good evening, Sangha. Tonight I am going to... How's the sound? Is it okay? You want it a little higher? Let's see if I can get it closer. How about that? Is that okay? Okay. So, uh, I was thinking, what am I going to talk about tonight? And uh, a few things crossed my mind. I I love the Eightfold Path because for me right now in my practice, there is no downtime at all. You know, practice is 24-7 regardless of what you're doing. And um, I wanted to talk about the Eightfold Path and uh, maybe sila ethics in Buddhism. I love that. But I thought, what would be good for a middle of a retreat? What is good for people who are in the middle of very deep practice? And so with the, um, with the uh, input from my teaching team here, uh, we thought the seven factors of awakening would be a good topic. And the seven factors of awakening are part of the Satipatthana, right? They're part of the four foundations of mindfulness. They are in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So this is another discussion of what mindfulness is. Because knowing whether uh, these things are in your mind or not is absolutely one aspect of samasati, sapajana, right mindfulness and clear comprehension. So I'll start off by just plugging in where the seven factors of awakening fit into the overall Buddhist uh, worldview, I guess, in the Eightfold Path. So we know we have in the Eightfold Path sila, or right conduct, and then uh, samadhi, uh, right concentration, or right awareness, and then panya, uh, wisdom, sila, samadhi, panya, ethical conduct, right meditation and wisdom. And uh, the factors of awakening fit right into the samadhi aspect of the Eightfold Path. And that is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, um, and I know this is a lot. You know, I was thinking, boy, you know, Bonnie, you can really get to be an egghead sometimes. But then I was delighted because I thought, oh my God, the Buddha was an egghead. And I had a, you know, it's like, he was a smart guy and he made all these lists. He was incredible. So, um, so, um, so I know this might seem like a lot, but I'm very happy to make, you know, anything on the seven factors of awakening. Actually, this talk is based on the section on the seven factors of awakening in, uh, the book of a very renowned Buddhist teacher named Joseph Goldstein. <laughs> you might have heard of him. And I think his book is available for purchase in the next room. <laughs> so everything you'd ever want to know about it with footnotes will be in the, in, in the, in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, 
So we know that in the fourth foundation of mindfulness now, our beloved Buddhist brother, the Venerable Analyo, has done you know, all of this early Buddhist scholarship. And he says the only thing we know for sure that's in the fourth foundation is actually the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So we can really feel good that this is what the Buddha taught. And um, so there's two stages of contemplation of the seven factors, two stages. The first stage is just to know whether any of the seven factors are present. And then the second stage is if you can see that they are present, knowing the conditions that further develop uh, the seven factors to perfection. So knowing, you know, it's here and how, you know, not thinking a lot, but what are the factors that maintains this? And then if the seven factors are absent, knowing the conditions that lead to their arising. Those are the two stages. And what are the seven factors? So um, you can think of it uh, in one way, and you know, I'm gonna give you the way that I'm holding it right now. I'm sure there are other ways to think about it. But um, there are seven factors, and mindfulness is the balancing tool for the seven factors. It's the balancing tool. So mindfulness, as in everything else, is like an incredibly great, you know, that's clear comprehension, bare attention without a lot of, you know, added, uh, without a lot of perceptual distortion, you know, clear seeing. So mindfulness is in the middle and it is the balancing force. There are three arising factors or uh, enlivening factors, three enlivening factors that kind of bring you up. The first one is investigation. Investigation leads to energy or effort. Energy and effort leads to joy or PT. And those are the three enlivening factors. And then PT, it's interesting, joy actually leads to the beginning of the calming factors. And uh, the calming factors are tranquility or calm. And calm and tranquility leads to concentration or samadhi, and samadhi concentration leads to equanimity, upekka, evenness of mind. So mindfulness, three arousing, investigation, energy, and joy, leading to the three calming, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So here's what the Buddha says about the enlightenment factors. Then a certain monk approached the Buddha. Having approached the Blessed One, he saluted him and sat down at one side. Venerable Sir, Venerable Sir, awakening factor, awakening factor. In what way, Venerable Sir, are they called awakening factors? Monk, yogi? They bring about awakening. Therefore, they are called awakening factors. <laughs> That's a pretty, pretty good, you know, promise though. 
so should I read these others? Okay, well. Then a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? Bhikkhus, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise adult. <laughs> venerable sir, it is said, wise and alert, wise and alert. In what way, venerable sir, is one called wise and alert? Bhikkhunis, it is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called wise and alert. Just as a river inclines and flows, flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline towards Nibbana. Freedom in that direction. Awakening, are we here to be awakened? Enlightenment, is that what I'm doing here? You know, I always think of retreat as ceremony. Is this an awakening ceremony? This is what Gil Fransdahl says about expectation versus aspiration. Because I think, you know, I think it trips us, us all up about, you know, how much striving and egoic clinging we have to becoming awakened and having certain qualities. And how do we do that without just adding to, uh, you know, those balls of uh, mana or conceit that we have? And this is what Gil Fransdahl says about that, expectation versus aspiration. If we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often arises from a non-discursive part of the heart and mind. Craving and clinging often are tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy, while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long, long contemplative periods <laughs> that people discover what they most want to base their life on. It is also important to respect both ourselves and our aspirations. It is easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the search for them. Believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspiration, it is better to try and fail than to never try. That's beautiful. So this, you know, this is a rare opportunity for us. Um, we can ask chitta, ask our heart-mind, you know, intuitive heart-mind where wisdom can come from. You know, what is my aspiration? What is the deepest wish for my life? And don't let your cognitive thinking, planning, adding up, linear mind answer that question, say, I always like to say to my thinking mind, which is often around, I love you so much, you're so useful, but I will talk to you on Monday. <laughs> you know, give it, some, uh, give it some good feelings, but tell it that 
that's not what we're working with on these days here. So the, what, what are we trying to do here with the awakening factors? We're trying to arouse them, know when they're present and not, and also to balance them. We're trying to balance them. Um, I went on a retreat with uh, the Venerable Analia where he talked about the seven factors as really, he said you can make distinctions between all seven of them, but it also sometimes is useful to think of the arousing ones and the calming ones. And he, you know, he used this analogy that was so interesting. He said, it's like a, a native Indian on a boat and he's rowing his canoe. And he would, um, he, he would seeing that he needs to go to the left, he would, you know, have his oar a certain way where he would go to the left. Or if he saw, you know, come, you know, something coming and he needed to go to the right, his oar would guide him to the right. And he said that is the analogy for balancing the awakening factors. I obviously really liked that one. <laughs> so what are the, uh, let's talk about them individually. So we've already talked quite a bit about mindfulness, about the qualities of mindfulness. Um, it is a stability of awareness a presence of mind that is, uh, it's a resting in a bigger sense of consciousness with some strength and clarity to actually see as certain objects or certain mind states or phenomena rise and fall in our awareness without getting too uh, wrapped up with them. a presence of mind, being face to face with whatever is arising, rather than giving, uh, giving it only sidelong glances. That's interesting. So really opening up to what's happening there. Uh, one important aspect of mindfulness as we know, uh, and it's very important for the seven factors, is knowing, uh, if what is arising is skillful or not skillful. And I know we've talked a lot about this, but it can't be really emphasized too much, I don't think, because that, you know, that discernment will tell you whether you should stay with what's happening and try to uh, you know, build up the strength of that mental factor, of that positive quality, or whether you should say, oh, I see that, and work to pull the weeds of that and weaken that mental factor in us. So knowing, um, you know, knowing whether what's in our heart and mind, what is arising and passing away, uh, you know, there's three possibilities. It's either wholesome, it's either not, not wholesome, or neither wholesome or not wholesome. There can also be neutral things that, uh, uh, that arise and pass away. So mindfulness. And uh, I talked a bit on my talk about uh, Sampajana or clear comprehension. And that is, again, just a simple direct watching something and um, non-interfering and non-judging. For me, I always have a judgment after what arises, but I also am, ha you know, I'm also pretty good at seeing the judgment and just saying, there you are, judgment, I see you. And you know, it makes, it actually weakens that, uh, that negative mind state when the judgment comes up. 
So that's one way it can be done. No stories is good. You know, don't really get involved with the stories. Here's one uh, quote about um, mindfulness that I will read from the Venerable Analyo. Sati, as a mental quality, represents the deliberate cultivation and qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-optimization, like, you know, we have, you know, we see things that we think we know what they are and we name them the same things. And he's saying it's to de-atomization of that. I don't know how to say that. Uh, it it uh, deconditions our habitual reactions to things and it deconditions our perceptual evaluations. And it leads to a progressive restructuring of perception, appraisal, and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality. Wow, we want that. And, you know, this is something actually I've heard Joseph say a couple times. If we're not seeing impermanence, non-self, and um, unsatisfactoriness and everything, we're not seeing things clearly. That is what things look like if we have an undistorted perception, an undistorted view. And that's not, you know, the Buddha, you know, they called him the happy one. He, you know, had undistorted view. He saw that and he was pretty darn happy. So that's the first, uh, first of the, uh, well, that's the balancing factors, our mindfulness to know, you know, to balancing the arousing and calming. The second, uh, the first arousing factor is something that we've talked about in groups and we've talked about it in the staff dining room is investigation, also known as discrimination of states. Um, This is uh, a discern, uh, discrimination of states, investigation of truth or discerning the Dhamma. And we can think of this as, actually this is thought to be the most important awakening factor that this is the key awakening factor that leads to insight and leads to awakening. In this one, um, I'll read this one quote. Questions of King Melinda is an account of the dialogue between Nagarjuna and the king of Afghanistan in 1000 BCE. In one of the dialogues, the king asks how many of the factors of enlightenment does one actually awaken? Does it take for one to actually awaken? Nagarjuna replies that awakening is by means of just one awakening factor, the factor of investigation of dhammas. So why then, the king asked, does the Buddha speak of seven factors of awakening? And uh, Nagasena says, does a sword placed in the sheath and not grasped in the hand succumb in cutting what needs to be cut? In exactly the same way, your majesty, one cannot awaken by means of the awakening factor of dhamma discrimination without the other six awakening factors. So it's like the blade of cutting through delusion is there with investigation, but it needs the other six factors to... Um, to, um, you know, strengthen it and make it work. 
So what are some of the dimensions of investigation? Again, knowing what is skillful and not skillful. Uh, recognizing habit patterns of suffering. You know, for me, like I was saying, uh, self-pity, I had a veil, a perceptual veil of self-pity that had been there my whole life. And I saw it actually in this room. I saw it so clearly. And, uh, you know, that it has an energetic feel to it. I was able to, every time self-pity would arise, I would say, I see you, Mara, self-pity. And it was amazing how much it had. It really was able to decondition that as a veil over my perception. And um, actually, I just realized another thought pattern I was having a lot. I, I labeled it. And, you know, I told you before, I also saw a lot of romantic fantasy in there. Just saying, oh, romantic fantasy. And the other day I saw one, I called it RAN, which is um, Rage Against Neoliberalism. <laughs> Some of you might have that too. <laughs> and I was going, oh, there you go again, Ran. I see you. <laughs> so, um, so, so just seeing what the, uh, you know, repeated patterns are that are in this heart and mind. See, uh, you know, another aspect of investigation is seeing personality as not self. You know, realizing that we have these personalities and, um, you know, they represent, you know, these mental factors that have certain strengths and are, you know, we all have different personalities because our life course is different. You know, the codependent arising of all these things is so contextually specific that, you know, we have different personalities because of all that. And whatever moment we're looking at personality right here as well. But you know something, this is something we've talked about in the SDR, and this is kind of an insider thing that we do, that many of you might know this, but within Buddhist cosmology, we say that there's three personality types. And you might consider which of these personality types you, uh, you fall into. We had a discussion about which ones we were the other day. <laughs> the first one is the greedy, desirous type. Uh, mostly sees what they like and what they want. Through wisdom, this quality is transformed into faith and devotion. So, uh, you know, you can really transform this into faith and devotion. Um, and there is a movement towards the wholesome. So the greedy type is a person who, uh, you're, you know, you're looking around, it's like, I want this. Actually, Sharon Salzberg in one of her books says that's the type of person who walks into the room and sees wh what they want right away, right? That's the greedy type. So you can consider, am I a greedy type? And then the second type is the aversive type. And the aversive type typically sees what is wrong with the world and what's wrong with the situation right now. They, you know, they come into a room and they'll tell, exact, they'll tell you exactly, they probably have a list of what's wrong with this retreat. <laughs> <laughs> they should do this, they should do that, it should be like this. And maybe the greedy type is like, oh yeah, this is the best and this is good, right? Um, but, you know, the aversive type, actually, when that is um, transformed into a positive uh, mental factor, it becomes discriminating intelligence. You know, people who are aversive often can see what's wrong with something and can see, you know, clearly uh, discriminating intelligence or see things clearly. So aversive type and 
discriminating intelligence. And then the third type is the deluded type. Deluded type. And that's like walking around saying, they walk into a room, you know, I think in Sharon's book she says, they walk into a room and they don't know what's happening. (laughs) Where should I sit? What's going on here? Why am I in this room? (laughs) The deluded types generally don't notice much of anything. But in its enlightened aspect, delusion transforms into great equanimity. Yeah, that's a good one. So faith and devotion, equanimity, or discriminating uh, discernment or discernment, wise discernment. That's what we're shooting for with all these personality types. So if those come up for you as a rant in the mind, maybe you could ask yourself, okay, where is... Uh, when you're greedy thinking about something, where is faith and devotion here? Or when you're ranting about what's not working and what you don't like, what's uh, uh, discriminating wisdom, where is that here? Or deluded type when you're walking around like, what's going on? What time is it? What should I be doing? You could think, oh, let's tap into the equanimity of that. So here's one quote from... um, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche about this. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, as real they will. So that is investigation. So how do we strengthen investigation? When unwholesome things are in the mind, you increase your vigilance. This is good advice, actually. I actually do this. When things are getting crazy, it's much more important to make sure that your concentration or samadhi is well enough for you to see what's happening in a clear way where you don't get tied up. Uh, When craziness is happening, you know, lack of control of what's coming out. I like to go back and uh, uh, have an anchor and a whole body awareness go to an anchor just to increase the clarity a little bit to see. You know, for me, that is what more vigilance looks like. And then when things are working and you're hanging out in calm and tranquility and joy, you can really relax that sense of vigilance. The uh, The second of the arousing factors is energy. And energy is the power to do. Um, So here's a quote about energy. And one who investigates and examines the states with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless energy is aroused, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused. And one develops it, and by developing 
development, it comes to fulfillment. So uh, investigation leads to energy or effort. And we can see how that would work when you're really interested in something. You don't have to say, oh, come on, you go do it. You know, you find the energy just arises in reference to what you want to do. And um, the dimensions of energy are strength. It, you know, allows us to uh, just be strong, you know, regardless of what's, you know, happening in the moment. It's a sense of valor and um, just gives us energy to do. And there's also an element of courage to energy, you know, to be able to open up to what's happening in the moment without shying away. We talked earlier today about um, one of the reasons why sleepiness arises is that you're shrinking back from what is arising and you don't want to see it. And uh, when energy is there, you know, your courage is ramped up so you're able to really open. And when our mindfulness is strong, they are, the things aren't so sticky. They don't seem so much like self. You know, one of my phrases when really ugly stuff arises is, wow, Bonnie, you are in an exquisite club of people who have romantic fantasy. <laughs> but that's not wholesome, so let's get back to something more wholesome. So here's what Sayada Utejaniya says about the courage aspect of energy. Avoiding difficulty... Difficult situations or running away from them does not usually take much skill or effort. But doing so prevents you from testing your own limits and from growing. The ability to face difficulties can be crucial for your growth. However, if you are faced with a situation in which the difficulties are simply overwhelming, you should step back for the time being and wait until you have built up enough strength to deal with it skillfully. So balancing the quality of effort. How do we uh, balance effort? Um, so there's some reflections that we can have that would arise effort. So one reflection is on the preciousness of the current circumstances. You can sit back and just say, okay, I'm reflecting now. I am at Insight Meditation Society, the mothership of Western early Buddhism. You know, uh, Mahasi Sayada has sat up on that stage. <laughs> Sayada Upandita, there's, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been here. You know, the energetic field in this place, to me anyway, is really remarkable. And just do that reflections like, don't waste my time here. You know, I want to take advantage of this opportunity. And then another good reflection for a lot of us old timers is reflection on death. I had an excellent, partly traumatic insight about death on my November retreat, and now I, you know, I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm, you know, I went two weeks later after I got back. I went to a retirement seminar because I want to practice really strongly. You know, I want to practice. Some they call that some vega spiritual urgency, you know, really wanting to uh, practice hard. So you, you know, reflection on death is excellent. And then another good reflection is on kama, that the only thing we keep going forward, you know, you know, people always ask if there's no self in Buddhism, what gets reborn? And a good answer is all of your karma. <laughs> all of those mental qualities that are strong, 
you know, whether they be beautiful or not so beautiful, that what's get, gets reborn. And then a reflection on the defects of samsara, you know, just a reflection on dukkha, on just the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence can also build up our energy. So um, from right effort or right energy, um, actually that leads to joy and rapture. It leads to joy. And, I, you know, I've seen this in many of you. And a lot of times we don't even know that joy is a mental state. It's like a mental state that we're viewing the world through. And I remember the first time I realized it was joy, I actually went in to see Joseph, like, I don't know how many years ago. And I was reporting to him and I was saying, and I keep telling myself jokes. And he said, that's joy. And I said, wow. And then I felt it on a much bigger sense. I felt it not just as the thoughts that were coming, I felt the energetic field of it and it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And I've seen that in you guys. You come into interviews and you're just cracking up. So if you feel that in your mind, you know, if you are looking at things that are amusing to you, see if you can't feel the bigger energetic field as well. That's important. And sometimes it actually can come as a physical sensation. Uh, sometimes it's PT, which is a physical sensation of little prickles all over our body that can feel really excellent, like ecstasy. But sometimes they can get too strong, they're too energetic and they start getting pretty annoying. And then <laughs> they can also feel like sukha or, uh, uh, these are definitely part of those um, unworldly pleasant sensations, right? This is what we're talking about. Uh, you can also feel it in your heart. And actually I feel a little sukha right now, I'm feeling all the love or just, you know, what it means to be in sangha and it's just joyful. <laughs> and uh, this idea of joy or rapture, there's this excellent Zen quote about it. It's from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. It is not like going into a shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know that you are getting wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you might say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually it is not. When you get out of the fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. We say, pulling out the weeds, we give nourishment to the plant. Oh, I love this one. We say, pulling out the weeds, we give nourishment to the plant. We pull the weeds and bury them near the plant to give it nourishment. So even though we have some difficulty in your practice, even though you have some waves while you are sitting, those waves themselves will help you. So you should not be bothered by your mind. You should rather be grateful to the weeds because eventually they will enrich your practice. So take all of those, you know, really unwholesome mental states that add, you know, that cause our own suffering into those around us and just say, I see you and I'm going to put you under the metta and under the compassion and equanimity so you can feed it all. So how do you strengthen rap rapture? You, uh, actually, one thing that really works for me is just reflecting on the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And, you know, I'm an egghead and... <laughs> 
just reflecting on just how incredibly insightful and deep what the Buddha taught was is just incredible to me. It really makes me happy. And um, contemplation of our sila, that's an excellent one too, is to remember all of the good things that you've done. They say that when you're with someone who is passing away, I'm going to remember my mother passed away two years ago. I know many people in here are dealing with that right now. That we should tell our parents what they did good, what was really good in their life. And uh, remind them, this is what you really did good. So we can reflect on our own goodness too, that it can bring up a lot of uh, joy and rapture. Reflect on our acts of generosity are really excellent. Uh, remembering our uh, sila and generosity, we can say, sadhu, 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 well done, well done. Reflect on the devas. I know some of you might not be in your cosmology, the spirit, you know, there's multiple, uh, um, multiple um, realities within Buddhism, right? Uh, multiple um, places people live. It's not just the earth realm. There's the deva realm where all of the spirits live and to reflect on the devas. I love when I'm doing walking the loop and I've told people this to actually send de- send metta to the devas during the whole trip. Send metta to the devas. I like to send metta to the indigenous devas around here. I remember our mashpee, Wampanoag and Anipmuk uh, devas and I send them metta and then it's interesting so when I actually am kind of uh, wigging out and don't have a lot of control I actually ask the devas for help and I feel like they come sweet so we can uh, reflect on peace and um, subsiding of defilements we can see how the practice is working to help our uh, joy and rap- our joy and rapture so from joy and rapture, it leads to the first calming factor, uh, which is calm or tranquility. And when the uh, refinement of rapture, the body and mind calm down, the enlightenment factor of tranquility, rel- relaxation, that tranquil mind is uh, easily unified. So this is a quote from the sutta. What venerable one is the reward and blessings of wholesome morality, freedom from remorse, Ananda, and of freedom from, oh, so what venerable one is the reward and blessing of of wholesome morality, freedom from remorse, Ananda, so freedom from remorse is the blessing of seal of good conduct, And, and freedom from remorse, joy ananda and what is the reward and blessing of joy rapture ananda and of rapture tranquility ananda so they one leads to the other i love this idea of morality the bliss of blamelessness we can always ask ourselves that because we could be blamed for things we could be in the middle of things and Check to see, did I contribute to this? And it's really sweet to reflect and say, hey, I've got the bliss of blamelessness here. It's very sweet. So calm, tranquility, serenity, or composure. Ways to develop calm. One way is to, um, within a whole body awareness, pick a, an anchor you know, in the breath uh, to build some tranquility or calm. Or body scans can do that. Body scans at the beginning or ending of sits. 
actually also starting your sit with some metta resolve, some loving kindness phrases can bring some tranquility and some um, calmness to your um, practice in that moment. Noting is good. Um, When walking, you can have reflections like just walk, just walk, things like that. These two qualities have a share in clear knowing. Which two? Tranquility and insights. Samadha and vipassana. When tranquility is developed, what purpose does it serve? The mind is developed, and when the mind is developed, what purpose does it serve? Passion is abandoned. When insight is developed, what purpose does it serve? Discernment is developed, and when discernment is developed, what purpose does it serve? Ignorance is abandoned. So that's um, tranquility, calm. And with tranquility and calm, tranquility and calm is the proximal cause for concentration or samadhi to arise. And I really do think that concentration is not a very good um, not a very good translation for the term samadhi because it, I don't know, it seems kind of very, I don't know, too solid or something. But concentration, and I'm sure we all know what that feels like when we have good um, samadhi in our practice, and that is we're able to open up to... um, Either we're, you know, have a particular focus for our practice, maybe the breath or a body scan, we have a focus, and we're able to really stay with that focus for a while without our minds wandering. And we can feel um, a collectedness of mind. Yeah, that's the, uh, that is the translation I like, a collectedness of mind. It's like all the little discerning patterns come together, and it's like it magnifies the... Uh, the vision of seeing, and it just gets stronger and bigger, collectedness of mind. And um, so um, we know that concentration can be incredibly, it's thought to be one of the highest levels of um, unworldly pleasant feeling because uh, actually PT, when you're doing jhanas, jhanas is a very specific type of concentration practice that the Buddha taught. And, you know, the Buddha was very into the jhanas. You know, I I read a story once where he was walking by his uh, monks were all like gossiping and chatting. And he's going, what are you doing? Go rest in jhana. You know, go get blissed out. Why are you doing this? So, um, you know, that was one thing that he said people could do that was very wholesome thing to do, is to go rest in unworldly pleasant sensation, pleasant uh, abiding. And there's a lot, you know, you can go to uh, jhana retreats, and there's a lot written about how to reach certain states of concentration. And again, you could just look up, you know, mindfulness concentration space pdf (laughs) and you will find things you can download and read all about (laughs) so concentration ways to arouse concentration oh the first uh, first is to know when concentration is there and when it isn't and 
you know, I've heard uh, a lot of people in groups talk about, you know, my mind is just wandering and it takes me a while to get back. I would say that in that case, that would be one time for you to say, wow, my, I don't have a lot of concentration in my mind. So I should go back and go to a foundational beginning practice in order to bring back that strength of collectedness of mind so I'm able to really track what's happening in the moment. You know, you can um, come back to focusing, but um, continuity of mindfulness also does the same thing, absolutely. In fact, you know, just being present for what's happening with your walking. In fact, you know, most of the biggest insights I've had, I've had actually during walking meditation. And, um, you know, not necessarily doing jhana practice or anything. So uh, continuity of mindfulness also really leads to good um, samadhi, uh, collectedness of mind as well. And, you know, that's not a big you know, focusing in and investigating everything that's happening, that's just in your mind, knowing what you're knowing in the moment. We're always knowing something. But when awareness is knowing what's being known, that's enlivening the sense of samadhi or collectedness of mind. And then with all of those wonderful um, enlightenment factors, it leads to the final calming factor, and that is uh, equanimity. Equanimity as an enlightenment factor. Here's the third Zen ancestor on equanimity. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. How to develop equanimity. First is forego attachment to having things having to be a certain way. Um, At one point, the Thai forest master Ajahn Chah held up a cup in front of a group of students. He said that the best way to relate to the cup is as if it's already broken. We use it and take care of it, but we remain unattached because we know it is subject to change. That's a good one. All of our relationships, all of the things that we're attached to. I'm already divorced. No, 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 no. (laughs) Here's another great quote on um, foregoing attachment. This is the very nature of life. Oh, this is actually uh, Sharon Salzberg. I love this quote. This is the very nature of life. No one in this world experiences only pleasure and no pain, and no one experiences only gain and no loss. When we open to this truth, we discover that there is no need to hold on or push away. Rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, we can find a sense of security in being able to meet what is actually happening. This is allowing for the mystery of things, not judging, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can... Receive what is happening, whatever it is. This acceptance is the source of our safety and and confidence. I love that. This acceptance of knowing that 
you know, the vagaries of life, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, gain and loss. They're not, you know, personal. Those are what life is made of. And when we can hold that and, uh, you know, not have our sense of well-being dependent on having things be a certain way, you know, that's equanimity and that's our safety and our confidence. I think uh, we were talking about equanimity, which I think is an excellent practice. Uh, And what, you know, how do you develop equanimity? We talked in groups today about the equanimity resolves or what some of the sayings are for equanimity. And uh, I think we put them up on the board. I'm going to if we haven't. And those are, may I accept things just as they are. May I accept things just as they are. May my mind be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. May my mind be undisturbed. So let's sit for a minute. Bhikkhus, the seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. May the benefits of our practice be offered to all beings in all directions, including ourselves.